uh, Revelation 2 from 8 to 11 radio. To the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Okay. How good's Rob Nichols? Um, I've added him to my list of heroes here, I think. And is Cole Marshall here? Where are you, Cole? <laughs> there he is. Mate, Cole, you, you must realise our love for you. We named our church after your book. We do love you, brother. So, uh, anyway, uh, it's good to be here today. Uh, Cole was actually uh, the guy who... Um, who did my church planner assessment with Benny Fartlett, and uh, that was such a great, <laughs> that was a great experience. And who, who's getting, um, who's getting uh, assessed this week? No one? Aren't we doing assessments? Four of us. It's a great experience. Uh, I found that incredibly affirming of the call. I was actually doubting, should we go into it? And uh, I was doubting my own ability and those guys really encourage us. Ben's laughing his head off. Doesn't sound like he really did believe in us from that look. But uh, anyway, I've got some photos to show you, actually. So, um, and uh, I want to show you, I want to begin by showing you some happy snaps of Vine Church. First one is, uh, is one of the newspaper articles. Let's see if this works. Is this on? It isn't. Okay, let's see. Let's see. Here we go. Here was one of our very first uh, newspaper articles in the Wentworth Courier. Uh, I'm in a pub. They're doing some little story on me. And interesting story, a couple of years later, uh, Mike Jontek, who was our MTS worker last year. Mike, are you here? Here he is, front row. Good boy. Uh, Mike is one of the most gifted evangelists I've ever met. Just so good at starting conversations with anyone. And he just brought so many people along to church. Um, <laughs> Someone's like mixing this. Uh, anyway, a couple of years later, after this, uh, Mike's out with some friends from his workplace, and he and he's there with a guy called Tom. They go back to his place, uh, and they start talking. Mike, of course, starts talking about Jesus, and Tom ends up saying, "You know what? A couple of years ago, I was reading this article in the Wentworth Courier, and it was about this church starting in Surrey Hills, and I thought, yeah, I could." I could maybe go to that church, and the pastor's phone number was on this, and I put the pastor's phone number in my phone. You wouldn't know who this Toby Neal guy is. And Mike's like, yeah, that's the church I go to. He's my friend. I planted that church with him. Long story short, Tom becomes a Christian, comes through Christianity Explored, and is really uh, growing in his faith right now. So that was, that was, I'm really proud of that, you know. One little article sees this guy come to faith. But I want to tell you about the very first time that uh, we made an appearance in our newspaper. And, you know, first appearance in newspaper, you want it to be really good. You want it to communicate what you're on about. It was written by a girl who saw 
us gathering on the lawn outside the Surrey Hills Neighbourhood Centre. We're like seven or ten people. This is pre-launch phase, meeting monthly. And she sees us. She comes up to us. She goes, guys, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, we're starting a church in Surrey Hills. She goes, wow, that sounds really interesting. Can I come along? And we're like, wow, revival's breaking out in Surrey Hills. This is incredible. So God's just sending people off the street into our church. He comes along. It was pathetic, that service, like, which they all were that first year. But um, she comes along, she stays afterwards, she starts talking to me. She says, I'm a journalism student and I'm writing a little article for UTS just as a little project. I'd love to do it on kind of new churches in the city, why people are planting churches. I'm like, yeah, that'd be great, right? Anyway, two weeks later, I get a, a text from a friend who I'd met in Surrey Hills. And this is what he says. He goes, ouch! He says, you guys got beat up pretty bad in the city, Hub. What on earth did you say? And I'm like, I don't know what I said. (laughs) And uh, I had to go searching for the article, and this is the article. Anti-gay church, threat to locals. Uh, Dana, she interviewed uh, 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 Nicholas Parkhill, head of ACON, which is the uh, AIDS Council of New South Wales. Uh, He says that we're a threat to the mental health and safety of the local gay community. She asked the president, pre, she asked the president of Surrey Hills Neighbourhood Centre why on earth they are letting us be a church in this place. She concocts this story that I'm into gay conversion therapy. I didn't even know what gay conversion therapy was. I'm into conversion, not just for gays, but also for straights, and not through therapy, through the preaching of the gospel. I'm like, I don't know what this thing is. I had to Google it. I found it on Wikipedia. It's, you know, electric shock therapy for gay people. And I'm like, that's not what I'm on about. So here we've been vilified, slandered, lied about. Our lease at the library, great venue, uh, is in jeopardy. We're really worried people will come the next meeting and protest. Our families in our church plant, they're like, is this safe to come along to church here? And we're like, God, what the heck are you doing? What happens next? Next, uh, the, next uh, the next week, one week uh, later, we're on uh, the website of SX, Australia's largest gay newspaper, Council Investigates Church Group. Uh, three days later... We are on page three of the Daily Telegraph. Fortunately, I don't think they use my names. Evangelism Ministries got dragged through the mug. Thank you, Al, Bruce, and Phil Wheeler. Uh, But uh, that was, what was that? That was kind of a week and a half later. Two days later after this, another article in the City News pops up. Two days later, SX picks it up again and says, I'm meeting with a local famous gay Christian Anthony Van Brown, who came out of the AOG uh, as, a, as a pastor of the AOG churches and, uh, and just said, no, God's okay with gay people. I met with him and he was, he was really nice. He was, he was just a great guy. We, we see things very dif- differently. And I thought I'd come in for a lot of hostility from him. I, I didn't and I haven't. He was very gracious uh, a couple of weeks later, Al Stewart wrote a letter, and uh, SX picks up that letter saying we deny ex-gay therapy. Uh, three months later, I get another email from Dana saying we've taken it to Clovermore and we're investigating legal options of prosecuting you. Here's a letter from the Lord Mayor of Sydney. 
about us. And then uh, three, months, three months after the first article, this is the final <laughs> article that pops up, gay conversion meetings to continue. And uh, that's the 12th of August. And it really, you know, if Jesus really is on the throne, what the heck is he doing? I just don't get this. Why? And come and talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to share the lessons I learned through this. But I did see, and I'll tell you some of them actually now. It rallied God's people to start praying for us. My bet is no one was praying for our little church plant up until that moment. And people saw this and said, crikey. Something's happening in Surrey Hills. We've got to pray for it. Secondly, it humbled me. Uh, I think I probably was starting a church off my own strength, and this just reminded me I can't do this uh, by myself. And um, Now, the, pers- the persecution that I suffered, it pales into insignificance, doesn't it, when we compare it to the experience of Christians around the world. Uh, 19 people will die today for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 19 Christians every day, 7,100 Christians were killed last year for their faith. Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world with up to four out of the five acts of religious discrimination happening against Christians. And here's the thing, you and I know that that's a reality. And my guess is if you're a pastor, you do feel the increasingly hostile society that we are living in. But do your people know that this is normal? This is a normal Christian life. We have been living in a very abnormal time and place where it hasn't been difficult to be a Christian in our world. And right now we're starting to see, no, actually the world does hate the Lord Jesus Christ and they will make war on those who call themselves by his name. And we are to expect all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we've got to expect this. We've got to be ready for it. We've got to prepare our people for this. But here's the thing. uh, Is it actually the case that actually we do think that being a Christian guarantees us a good life? I know none of us believe that, right? The prosperity gospel has been nailed down as as being completely rubbish since I was a teenager. Dave Sheath was preaching on that when I was an 18-year-old boy at Christchurch Gladesville. I've heard prosperity gospel, it's wrong, it's wrong for the last 15, 20 years of my life. But secretly, if I'm honest with myself, I do think that being a church planter, surely that does exempt me from suffering, doesn't it? I mean, why would God put me... I've got lots to do. I, uh, reality, I was preparing this sermon a couple of weeks ago. And I was, I, was refle- I, I, I do believe, I, I think I have believed. I really do think I'm a Christian, I'm obeying him, I'm making sacrifice. Surely that does mean my kids are going to be safer than other kids, doesn't it? I think that's probably very common, isn't it? I think being a Christian, I, I get, like even as I've reflected on this and I'm trying to get it into my life, I still think surely I'm going to be protected from things which those who don't know the Lord Jesus won't and who are living in rebellion from him. Surely he'll protect me, won't he? 
And then a Dan Goody gets leukemia. And then we get plastered all over the news for trying to do a good thing for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you compare this to what's going on in the rest of the world where it really is costly to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they know it. They're not kind of got a... Their mind's not somewhere else. They don't misunderstand this topic. And yet we do misunderstand this topic. We need a theology big enough to account for bad things happening in our lives and yet God loving us. And yet in the West, we don't have that. We have what Christian Smith, the sociologist, calls moral therapeutic deism. He says that defines kind of Western Christianity. Moral, meaning we're all good people, getting better. That's why we go to church. We're not sinners needing salvation. Moral, therapeutic, which means my purpose in life is to be happy and fulfilled, not to live trembling before the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deism, that is that God isn't a part of my day, but somebody I come to when I have a need. Uh, The website cartoonist Adam Fordee He illustrates the God of moral therapeutic deism and he kind of portrays him as uh, as a genie who kind of who grants all our wishes and said, hello there, you rang. How can I make you feel better right now? How can I serve you? Wow, you're looking nice today. You're just the greatest thing, aren't you? Man, I'm lucky to be your God. That is the dominant worldview of the Christians in your church right now and it is so different from the christianity of the rest of the world who know that it will cost them deeply if they follow the lord jesus christ and we must deal with this issue not only because this is a false view of god but also because there is an increasingly virulent antagonism toward christianity in our country which will only increase over time we live in an age which one writer calls uh, one writer calls the social media lynch mob, right? Where crime and punishment is dictated by the emotion of the masses online. If you support traditional marriage, your business is boycotted. You're vilified as a bigot, homophobe, and a non-human, worth nothing more than the cruelest excommunication. If you think a person with a penis who's competed in the Olympic Games as a man, is a man, then you are vilified as committing the thought crime of transphobia. If you're the Sydney University Student Union and you think you've got to be a Christian to be on the executive, then you are excluded because you're not inclusive enough. This is where our world and our city is going to and we must prepare for it. Today we're looking at the second letter Jesus writes to the seven churches in Revelation. And in each one of these letters, Jesus describes himself so that you know who he's talking about. And each one of his descriptions relates very personally and helpfully to the situation the Christians in that church are facing. Then he commends the church, then he challenges them, and then he offers them some comfort. But what is interesting is in two of the seven letters... Jesus, in in most of the seven letters, he's saying that he really does have a problem with the church. Uh, And he says, if you don't change, if you don't repent, here's what I'm going to have to do. But in two of the letters, the church of Smyrna and Philadelphia, there's no word of blame. Instead, Jesus just encourages them. 
the church of Smyrna, they faced persecution and suffering. And Jesus' message is, don't fear. Stay faithful because I love you. And if you stay faithful, I'll give you the crown of life. The suffering is mentioned in a couple of places. Look down at verse 9. The Lord Jesus says, I know your afflictions, which means crushing burdens. I know your poverty, and yet you're rich. Just a, a quick little subtle reminder from the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We can only imagine what this means. Here they are in immense pressure, in living in a city that is the pride of Rome. This city... Uh, the worship of Caesar was very popular. Around about AD 25, all the Asian cities competed for the privilege of erecting a temple to the emperor Tiberius, and that privilege was granted to Smyrna alone. And it was considered patriotic and loyal to undertake a very public ritual which involved sprinkling incense on an altar before the idol to Tiberius. And at that moment, as you're sprinkling the incense, you would say, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians, obviously, they said, we'll gladly pray for Caesar. We're not going to call him Lord. There's one Lord over heaven and earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they refuse and are unwilling to conform. And it was interpreted by their neighbors as a disgraceful and unpatriotic thing. Now, the underlying antagonism to the Christians in Smyrna, which was there, it was exacerbated and fanned into flame by the local Jewish population, which Jesus just labels a synagogue of Satan. The Jews were exempt from the obligation uh, for some reason or another. They were exempt from this obligation to, to offer up a sacrifice to Caesar and say that he is Lord. And in the early days, Christians kind of fell under the Jewish uh, this uh, Jewish uh, uh, exemption from this obligation. But as more and more people became Christians, the Jews started to get jealous and angry at the Christians, and they said to the Romans, these Christians, they're not Jews, they shouldn't be exempt, they should have to do this. And so the Jews, they heap upon them even more, uh, they, they raise a level of antagonism in the city of Smyrna. And so Jesus says, verse 9, I know your poverty. It's surprising. This is a very wealthy city. Here's an image of uh, modern-day Smyrna. I think it's still around this city. Ephesus is dead, but Smyrna is still alive. They have endured. Uh, it was a very wealthy city, and yet it is surprising, isn't it, isn't it, that in the midst of this very wealthy city, some would be poor. And here we see how they were persecuted. Some of them lost their jobs. Some of them just their neighbors refused to do business with them. They said, how, how can we do business with you? You're unpatriotic. We can't trust you. You can't work here. They began to suffer financially. Their homes were vandalized and plundered. And then Jesus say, you're slandered, verse 9. They were vilified publicly. Lies were spread about them. And some of you know that experience. That's what's happening. And then Jesus continues, verse 16, he says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death. 
He's telling Christians in Smyrna, you haven't even seen anything yet. More's coming. Some of you will be arrested. Some of you will be put in prison. And some of you will be torn apart by lions. They will kill you. And behind it all, we're told, is Satan, the devil. He's the one behind this all. He's the enemy, our oldest enemy, the vicious spiritual power at work in our world. He hates God, and so he hates God's people. J.I. Packer, who isn't really given to exaggeration, is he? Uh, That's why his books are so boring, but good, but just pretty dry, uh, because he doesn't exaggerate enough, right? But this is what he says. He says, Scripture clearly means us to believe in a Satan of quite unimaginable badness, more cruel, malicious, proud, scornful, perverted, destructive, disgusting, filthy, despicable than anything our minds can conceive. And he has always raged, raged against the church of God. I love, uh, I love J.C. Ryle, and I'm glad to see that a new biography is, has come out by... Who's written that biography? No one knows? Anyway, you should read it. Not that I have yet, but I'm looking forward to it. This is what he says in his first little chapter on warnings to the churches on the true church. He says, The history of Christ's true church has always been one of conflict and war. It has been constantly assailed by the deadly enemy, Satan, the prince of this world. The devil hates the true church of Christ with an undying hatred. He is ever stirring up opposition against all its members. He is ever urging the children of this world to do his will and injure and harass the people of God. If he cannot bruise the head, he will bruise the heel. If he cannot rob believers of heaven, he will vex them. By the way, that's reality, isn't it? Opposition so fierce in Smyrna that these Christians are about to be thrown to the lions, burned at the stake, and Jesus writes to them and says, guys, it's, it's about to get worse. And things did get worse. We know that from history, don't we? The most famous story is that wonderful story of that man Polycarp. Polycarp would have been a young man in the church as this letter got delivered. He was the assistant to the Apostle John. He grew up, became the Bishop of Smyrna, and at the age of 86, everyone just looked to him in the area. But he was a friend of the Apostle John, and they just came to him to listen to his stories. But what really made him such an inspiration is the way he died. When Polycarp was 86, there was one of these... uh, He was caught up in one of these periodic outbreaks of violence against the Christians. And rather than running, he stayed in his cottage outside the city and remained in prayer. The authorities came to him. He offered them some food and he said, can you just give me a couple more hours of prayer? And he prayed and prayed. He saw a vision of his coming death. And, uh, and then finally they brought him in. The sheriff, as he's bringing them in, pleaded with him. That uh, pleaded with him saying, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar? and offering incense, and saving yourself. But Polycarp answered, I do not intend to do what you advise. (laughs) So polite, isn't it? (laughs) I do not intend to do what you advise. And so angered, they took him into the stadium where there was a huge hostile crowd 
uh, chanting for his death, the proconsuls sought to persuade Polycarp again to deny Christ, saying, swear, and I will free you. Curse Christ. And to this, Polycarp gives his famous reply. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And again, the proconsul said to him, I'll cause you to be consumed with fire if you will not repent. Please repent. But Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little while is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Bring on what you will. There is this 86-year-old He's there before the magistrate representing Rome, threatening to burn him before a crowd who are yelling for him to be killed. And he says, bring it on. It's amazing, isn't it? Can you say that? Could you say that? Where do you get that kind of courage from? We're going to need it. Where did he get that kind of strength? Where did the Christians in Smyrna get that kind of strength? Where do we get it? Where are we going to get it from? Where are we going to, how are we going to train our kids to come up into a world which is hostile and hates them? That's the world they're going to be brought up in. Well, this letter is what gives it to them, isn't it? That's what Polycarp received. And no doubt he poured over this letter over and over and over again up until he was age 86. And I think, where do you get this kind of fearless endurance from? That's the title of my talk today, Fearless Endurance. Yesterday it was Deep Love, Three Marks of a Healthy Church, Fearless Endurance, Deep Love, and I can't remember the title for tomorrow, but where do you get fearless endurance from? Three things, and I think we see three things. And uh, we'll move through these quickly, but we see three things here. You get fearlessness from having a vivid awareness of the love of Jesus. Secondly, a vivid awareness of the sovereign power of Christ. And thirdly, a vivid awareness of the crown, the victor's crown that Christ will give you. There's the three things which no doubt Polycarp had. He had this vivid awareness. It wasn't just this passing shadow in his mind. He was conscious of these three things, and that just gave him this boldness and fearlessness. Okay, so firstly is a vivid awareness of the love of Jesus. Where is his love in this letter? Well, it's there in those first two words, I know, verse 9, isn't it? I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know the slander. He knows. He sympathizes. He cares and he loves. The first thing that will be brought into question when you suffer, especially if you are suffering persecution, the first thing that will be brought into question is whether Jesus really does love you. You'll be tempted to doubt that. Satan will parade reason upon reason in your mind and he will rob you of the assurance of the love of Jesus. And he will try and sap your joy and strength from your life by assaulting you on this point. Don't stand for it. Remember that he, verse 8, is the one who died and came alive again. Why did he die? Because he loves you. 
That's what this letter is dripping with. He knows. He lives for us and he died for us. He loves us. And now he sits in heaven pleading our case before our heavenly father to make sure that God's care will never fail us. This is the secret of the conquest of fear and worry and suspense in your life. Charles Spurgeon, he famously said, when you can't trace his hand, when you don't understand what his hand is doing in your life, that's when you must trust his heart. That's what Polycarp has, isn't it? He had a vivid awareness of the love of Jesus Christ. He didn't see what's about to happen to him as evidence that Jesus didn't love him. The cross proved it to him and therefore he was able to face whatever came his way as coming from the hand of the one who loves him. And that gave us incredible boldness. Secondly, it came from a vivid awareness of the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. The second thing you and I need is a vivid awareness that Jesus Christ is ascended and ruling and seated on a throne in heaven that he is in control. It's not enough simply to know Jesus loves you and that he just loves you and he sympathizes. I don't need someone who just gets alongside me and says, oh, there, there, I care for you. I need someone who is over and above it, who is able to redirect the plans and purposes of Satan and channel them for my good. That's what I need. That's what you need if you are suffering. Now come down to verse 10 because here is the verse which I don't think makes sense. I think Western we do not understand this verse, do we? Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. It should read, don't be afraid because you're not going to suffer. Shouldn't it? I mean, don't be afraid you're about to die. But don't be afraid. That doesn't make any sense to me. How can I be afraid I'm about to suffer? What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's saying you need a vivid awareness of the sovereign power of Jesus Christ so that you're not afraid of what you're about to suffer. Where do you see that? Come down this little insight into verse 10. See verse 10? He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, no one knows what those 10 days mean. (laughs) Everyone comes up with a different explanation. Uh, We're not really sure if it's literal, metaphorical, whatever it is, period of time, or literally 10 days. Some of them will be in prison for 10 literal days. We just don't know. But whatever it is, 10 days means that they will suffer persecution for a set period of time. It's not an indefinite period of time, but a set period of time. Now, my guess is that when Satan is putting them in prison... His desire is not that they be in there for 10 days. He wants to bury them forever. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ says, thus far, Satan, and no further. Here we see Jesus saying there is a limit to the extent to which Satan has power over our lives. All of it is subservient to the plans of the Lord Jesus Christ. 10 days, no more. Satan, he's like, I want more. I want an eternity in which they are in prison, locked up, tasting the second death. And Jesus says, no, you will suffer and you will be put in prison. But 10 days, there's a limit to it. What does that show us? It shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ, he is sovereign over even the worst things that happen in your life. Jesus is telling them that no matter what the devil is doing, 
pretty much the same as what he says in Job. No matter what he's doing, no matter what he's intending, Jesus overrules and says, thus far, no further. That means that whenever you suffer, even if you're to suffer persecution, which I know some of you are, that God's, Jesus, he's monitoring it. There's 10 days, no more. There's a limit to it. Everything that happens in your life must first pass before his sovereign review. And he must give it permission. Come back to verse 8 there. We read, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. That's what this church needed to hear. Ephesus needed to know that Lord Jesus Christ is walking among the lampstands. And if they don't start loving, he's going to blow out their candle. This church needs to know that he is the first and the last. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is telling the disciples and you and me that our lives are bracketed, boundaried, not by the decisions and actions of Caesar, nor by the rise and fall of Rome, not by the moral zeitgeist of Sydney and their intolerance, not by the rise and fall of our city's secular immorality, but our lives are boundaried by him. He is the first and the last. Whatever happens in our history and whatever happens in my history, Jesus is the first word and the last word. Jesus is here in the middle and he's speaking life to us so that we would know that nothing that happens happens apart from his sovereign plan. On Christmas Day 1939, King George VI of England, he gave a brief radio address to a troubled nation. England was already at war with Germany. Soon all of, Egypt, all of Europe uh, would be plunged into the terrible darkness of a brutal, unrestrained war. And the king goes on radio to encourage his people as the storm clouds gather overhead. And he ends his address by quoting uh, the unknown at that time, the unknown poem of Louise Haskins, The Gate of the Year. I think such a beautiful poem. And uh, this is how the poem goes. It goes like this. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may tread safely into the known. I need a light. I need to see where I'm going. Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, no, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known way. No one but God knows what your future holds. And you may try and get some kind of certainty about where your future is going, but it's foolish, safer than the known way and better than the light is the hand of the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ. That will give you confidence knowing that wherever you go, he goes with you. And therefore, we need not fear the future. That's what Polycarp has. That's what this church in Smyrna has. Ten days and no more. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Your life is bracketed by the sovereign plan of God. I can trust him, not just because he is sovereign and in power, but because he loves me and he will use his power for my good. That's what Polycarp has, isn't it? And thirdly and finally, the third thing that this little church are given 
And Polycarp has is a vivid awareness of the crown of life. That's the final thing that you need to conquer your fears. And Christ will give the crown of life to those who are victorious. Do you see verse 10? Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches today. The Spirit is saying this to you for your encouragement and perseverance and endurance today. There is a rich reward to the Christian who doesn't fear but endures through suffering. Each of these letters ends with the promise of appropriate reward for what the church is struggling with. Don't just read it as a series of disconnected points. Try and put it all together. I found that very difficult, by the way. But try and put it all together. The Lord Jesus says, I will give. In other words, Jesus is generous in his gifts. And he says, if we endure, if we hold on to Jesus and stay faithful to him, we shall escape the second death. Verse 11, he who overcomes will not at all be hurt by the second death. He says, if we endure, we'll escape hell, which is where Satan is really trying to drag us and enter heaven, which is the crown of life. And yet we need to be faithful, even to the point of death. But the second death, that won't touch you. The first death, that may touch you. And it may hurt, but don't fear. The second death won't hit you. That's the real death to fear, isn't it? And so the crown of life here is the same as the tree of life, which Ephesus are promised. Uh, The metaphor has changed. Heaven is not just a pleasure garden, an eternal life, a tree bearing delicious fruit, but it's a finishing line at the end of a long and difficult race. Eternal life is the victor's crown, a gold medal. Smyrna was famous for its arena and games, and so Jesus says, you know what, Smyrnans, Christian life, it's a race, a contest. It requires endurance, faithfulness, energy, and commitment. The pace is fast and difficult. There will be sweat and pain, but I'm standing there at the finish line cheering you on. And when you cross, there'll be a victor's crown placed on your head and you will receive the joy of eternity. One day... You will be in a vast stadium with trillions and trillions of people there. And one day you'll be in this vast stadium and your name will be called. And you'll walk down the steps of this vast stadium up onto the stage and there will be the Lord Jesus Christ clothed in splendor and glory and majesty and power. And if you endure to the end, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your rest. Here is your victor's crown. And that moment will last with you for an eternity. That's what you're living for, isn't it? That's what will drive out the fear in your lives. That's what will give you boldness to stand for Jesus in an increasingly hostile world. Don't fear. You will receive the victor's crown. The Lord Jesus is sovereign over all things and he loves you. 
That's what we see here, isn't it? The crown of life is a vivid reality to Polycarp. It must be. He doesn't fear death. He fears the second death, and therefore he refuses to curse the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to the degree you have not just a passing acquaintance, but a vivid awareness of these three things. You will go through life bold, courageous, faithful, all the way to the end. Give your children this. They will need it. He promises that there will be no second death, no hell, no condemnation, no wrath for those who persevere to the end. For the Christian, this world is as close as we ever get to hell. For those who don't know Christ, this world is as close as they will ever get to heaven because Jesus died and rose and if we die for him, we will rise with him. I love the story about John Chrysostom, the 4th century church father who was brought before Empress Eudoxia. She threatens him with banishment for preaching the gospel. And he says, you can't banish me, but this world is my father's world. Wherever you send me, I'm preaching Jesus. And so she says, well, then I'll kill you. And he says, you can't kill me, but my life is hid with Christ. To live is is Christ, to die is gain. I'll just go and enter into the true life. She says, well, then I'll take away all your treasures. He says, you can't do that, for my treasure is in heaven, and that's where my heart is. So she says, well, then I'll drive you away from all your friends and you will have no one left. He says, no, you can't even do that for I have a friend in heaven whom you cannot separate me. I defy you. There is no harm you can do to me, Empress Eudoxia. Where does John Chrysostom get that kind of fearless endurance from? He's got a vivid awareness of the crown of life. That's where his heart is set. It's where his treasure is. That's what he's longing for. And Jesus says, Jesus is saying that when you suffer, remember that this life is not all there is. There are homes and children and friends and plenty of rest on the other side. Hold on and you'll eat and drink your fill. Don't give in to the devil's temptation to doubt deny the goodness of God. How are the Christians of the Middle East, how are, how are they staying faithful right now? When everything is breathing down their neck, saying they should give up, it's too hard, too much, they stay faithful the way we stay faithful. They hold on to the promise of Jesus. They don't doubt his love. They trust his power. And they long for heaven. Pastors, this must be a regular feature of your preaching. Your preaching must drip with the glory of Christ, but it also the glory so that people love Christ, but it must also drip with the reality of heaven and hell. Preach often on heaven. Preach seriously and with a tear in your eyes on hell. And give your people a vivid awareness of the sovereign Lord who loves his people and the crown of life which he will give them. Don't fear. Be faithful. He loves you. He's in control. And you will receive the victor's crown. Let me pray.
Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are ascended and ruling from heaven and nothing happens in our world that is apart from your plan and purpose. Father, we thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that we aren't forgotten, that he knows what we're going through, that his love is proved by his death for us so that we can trust him whatever happens. Father, we pray that heaven would be dear for us, that we'd long for it, that we'd live for it, that you'd, that we, you'd help us to cultivate in our people an otherworldliness, that they wouldn't be distracted by the things of this world, that they would be longing for the victor's crown. We pray that so that we would be fearless in our endurance particularly for the next generation of Christians in our world. We pray that you'd help us raise a generation of men and women and children who will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ even to the point of death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.